You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. The 12th of April was the the go-ahead, the green light for anyone who wanted to go away. And you and I decided that that was it. We were going, weren't we? I think it was a shock to my friends, actually, that went so quickly. (laughs) Well, I think we actually had our bags packed already. As soon as lockdown was, was over... We were just off, weren't we? You, we were. You, you went off on a nice break to, what was it, Cornwall? Yeah, Cornwall. Mm-hmm. That's right. You know that place at the end of the of England, somewhere in the West yes, Country? Yes, that, that long, yeah. thin, warm bit, the bit that everyone yeah. likes. Yes, mm. the one that, yes. And where, we, where are you? Well, you're well, still there, but where? The bit that people like as well. I'm still in Scotland. <laughs> I'm, I came up to where I, where I do live as well, kind of, because obviously, you know. I've got yes. history. You can tell by my yes. voice, can't you? Well, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So I'm I'm up here at the moment. Um, in, the weather isn't as bad as as predicted. The sun has just come out. Wow. This is it. Scotland we're talking about I as well. Know. Yeah. I know. This is this is this is quite crucial actually. I mean, you know what? I just before I left, mm. I washed all of my wardrobe, every single item of my wardrobe, before I, you got to Scotland. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, I washed it, ironed it, and hung it all back up again, just to freshen everything up, because I haven't worn some of these clothes for mm. over a year. And everything was getting a bit must. You know, we don't really have a cover in our wardrobe. We have a, it's just the way it's kind of designed. It's quite open, which I don't like. But anyway, it gets a little bit dusty. So I cleaned everything, jackets a lot. Everything was cleaned, and it's all hung up and, and smelling very fresh now. And I also cleaned out all of my jewellery. <gasps> I looked look through my makeup as well. So I had a complete kind of... Um, a different kind of makeover, if you like, of myself with my clothes and my um, my jewellery. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because yeah. I thought that when I went to Cornwall that I I took the usual stuff, but I had everything prepared. As you say, come the twelfth of April, we thought, right, that is it. Oh. I'm ready. So by the time I packed, I have never ever been so organized that I was packed before my husband yeah. he had to sit down and have a cup of coffee because my bags came out before him to well, go in the car yes, yeah me too usually ah, interesting my husband is the one who's got, and I'm running around looking for these last minute things instead of it was the other way around now talking of which we we yeah you were saying earlier about makeup bags mm. I I was umming and ahhing about taking my makeup bag I thought I'd go feral even on holiday really and did you mm. No. Oh, thank goodness for the population down there. Oh, well, thank you, you so much, want, Linda. You wouldn't want to put them through that, really, would you? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, indeed. <laughs> I suppose you did as well, then. Did you I'm bring your makeup bag? As you can see, I have no makeup on at the moment. Mm. But I have brought my makeup, yes. I brought my makeup. And I've been trying out a couple of new things. I've been watching that programme on television 10 years younger in 10 days. And I did wonder what they could do to me if I went on that show. <laughs> kind of, you kind of alluded to this, I think, Kim. And the, the last time we had a little chat when we were doing this programme, actually, you said hmm. that I could do with going on a... More I, I did, could, didn't I? You did. You said I could do with going on a makeover programme well, had I thought about it. Well, <laughs> in honour of that, we're going to be speaking... <laughs> To the makeup artist, Hannah Martin, of 10 years younger in 10 days. I thought that might be a good way to go, Susie. What do you think? Definitely. I am very much looking forward to that because I think having a year of no makeup 
not even seeing my makeup bag on my dressing table somewhere in the cupboard i decided that, that yes it's a it's an amazing idea to go and talk to hannah about this because i'm sure she's going to give us i'm sure she's going to enlighten us linda i think hopefully we're going to be enlightened by this yeah and our other guest i mean we don't normally yes. do authors and we did an author in our last <laughs> program but we've got another author and her name is georgia kaufman I read her latest novel and I absolutely loved it, The Dressmaker of Paris. I thought, oh, we've just got to speak to her because she's going to be really interesting. And I think she will be. So we're meeting Georgia Kaufman on this show as well. Yeah, we have got two very, very interesting ladies once again. And we always do that. We always pick some really, really nice I know, people. I think, I think we've been very, very lucky. And, and the people that have, we have dragged kicking and screaming into the mic. Yes, into the mic and that. But please don't take offence, though, Linda, will you, about having a makeover? I, oh, I, I know. I'm only, I, I, I'm only I, doing because I care about you. I know. <laughs> I haven't taken offence. I haven't taken offence in the least. <laughs> That's why we've got a makeup artist yes. coming on. <laughs> no, That's I'm why kidding. you're in your Scotland and I'm back <laughs> yes, here at yes. home. Because just as far away case. from you as possible, to be quite honest. That's why I'm here. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> and now we're going to meet Georgia Kaufman. We're delighted to meet Dr. Georgia Kaufman, writer of the recently published novel The Dressmaker of Paris. Georgia attended Cambridge University in 1980 and, in fact, was in the first intake of women at Queen's College. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Georgia. Hello. Thank you very much. Now, first, I've got to tell you that I absolutely loved The Dressmaker of Paris. In fact, I couldn't put it down. I read it at breakneck speed. I thought it was brilliant. But, of course, the purpose of this is to talk about your life. You were born in London and I believe you enjoyed writing from an early age, is that right? Yes, I mean it's something I always did. I, I think I won the Daily Mirror short story competition or was shortlisted or longlisted for it when I was 11 or 12, I can't remember exactly when, and then I wrote my first absolutely appalling novel which I still have in a file <laughs> um, when I was about 15 and it really is abysmal. Well, I've read some of my diaries from when I was a teenager and I just sit there cringing, to be quite honest. Yeah, At the time, you think you're writing a work of art, though, don't you, really? <laughs> no, Daily you... record of the weather. That's as exciting as my diary gets. <laughs> <laughs> I had all kinds of um, initials and things like that because I was frightened anybody would find it and they'd find yep, out boys yep, are fancy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's about the sum of mine. <laughs> exactly. Now, you took a gap year between leaving school and going to Cambridge. So tell us about that experience. I was very lucky to have won a competition where they sent um, 12 young people who were meant to be non-Jewish to Israel for the year. Um, it was called the Bridge in Britain. The idea was to sort of send non-Jews to Israel and get an idea of what Israel would be like. And they, we were all meant to be um, national leaders in the future. Only one of us has managed to get into any prominence. And most of us came back with very open eyes and not particularly prose ready, but we had a fantastic time picking grapefruits, um, doing an archaeological dig, going to Egypt and generally having our eyes opened. Was it a place that you decided at the time you wanted to go back to at any time? No, in 1982 I decided I would never go back to Israel until there was peace and in fact I kind of gave up on that promise. That was the time the Shatila and Sabra, incursion of the Shatila and Sabra um, refugee camps in Lebanon. And I went back, I think, two or three years ago, just because I realised there's never going to be peace. And it was quite amazing to see how much the country had changed. I can imagine. Um, 
totally, totally different. It's gone from being a sort of frontier Wild West to a modern city. Georgia, the trip that you've just mentioned, do you still keep in touch with all the entrants that were given that opportunity to go to Israel? You say um, one of them made it through. Do, do you keep in touch or is this something that's just... Yeah, it's, really? the, it's actually the core of my best friends are from that group. There was a school friend who also won and we went together and then I have a friend who... I think, how many of us were at Cambridge? One, two, I think about five of us were at Cambridge and they. I'm in touch with all of them, but... Um, Three of my best friends were both at Cambridge and in the trip. And then I have another friend who was a doctor who wasn't at Cambridge. And then I've been in contact with two others. So it's, it's a really important part of my life. It's yeah. lovely, actually, to have friends that go back that far and have yeah. that shared experience. Yeah, they really, you kind of really know each other. You then went on to um, Queen's College in Cambridge to do yep. a degree in anthropology. I'm frightened to ask, but how did that go? <laughs> uh, well, yeah. The first thing I have to say about being a student at Cambridge is I didn't actually understand for the first year that studying was involved in being a student. (laughs) (laughs) And I I can remember someone telling me at some point that you could choose two lives at Cambridge. You can study, you can do a sport, you can have sex and you can socialise, but you can't do more than any two of the above. (laughs) And I singularly failed at all of the above my first year, so I I was pretty hopeless. But the hardest thing of all was being one of the first 39 women at Queen's College. And we were commonly called the 39 Steps. And it was it was not the easiest of times, sort of being one of 39 and almost 350 men and sort of such a male institution. And weren't um, the men quite supportive of the women? You'd imagine they'd be quite excited about having some women around at college. Um, they, the college had held a stag night the year before we arrived to mourn the passing of their their time as a single-sex college. There had some men who protested against that, but other men had participated. They got one female fellow in, as if that would be enough. And they, no, they were wholly unprepared. They, they thought they were prepared. But, you know, going back that length of time, society was different. Mm-hmm. It was not a very woke environment, put it that way. No. So, so you think that this is what really gave you the bad experience then apart from the study do you think that's what gave you such a bad taste about Cambridge no so I love Cambridge my my mm. mother when she first came to England my mother's life sort of parallels the the character in, in in the novel but not really and my mother when she'd first come to England on a language exchange had stayed with um, the family called the Bradfords who owned the hotel on Parker's Peace and the Bradfords had been a very established family in Cambridge and they'd been the mayors of Cambridge and all sorts of things. My mother did a language exchange with them. And so I'd always gone to Cambridge all the way through my life to visit this family. It was my, my mother's sort of English family. And I decided at a very early age that I was going to go to Cambridge, but I hadn't realised what Cambridge was. Mm-hmm. So I always loved Cambridge and I always wanted to go there and I was just incredibly lucky that I did get in. Cambridge is just one of the most beautiful places in the UK. It is, yeah. it's lovely. It is. Like, I used to sometimes be late for lectures because I'd just be walking along King's Parade <laughs> and the tree, uh, you know, was, was in a particular, there the particular leaves on it or light on it and I just, I would stop. So I kind of loved Cambridge in many respects and I rode and I, I, I yes. adored it. I, I noticed I did, that. You did some rowing, yeah. Yeah, no, no, that, that that stayed with me a long time. I rode, but I still have a rowing machine that has stayed with me all the time. But I found what was really hard about being Cambridge was not just a single sex issue at Queen's, but 
the otherness, I, you know, I might sound like a typical North Londoner and, and quite posh, but in, my mother was Italian, Austro-Italian, my father was an immigrant refugee, and I didn't fit into proper English middle-class life. I wasn't able to make the conversations that people make. I just, I was, I was slightly other. And I think the undergraduate student body was very, very English still at that time. And I say English rather than British. Mm. And it's very, very different now. Yeah. But I, I felt like a misfit. I think this otherness is quite a, an interesting area, actually. And I, when I was growing up, I felt I went to a state school and then suddenly I was going out with this boyfriend who decided that he was as posh as anything. And I ended up going having dinner with him. And I was so nervous and so thinking I was the imposter that I went downstairs to the loo and I had to be sick because I was so nervous. So I know oh. about this otherness. I know this otherness of now feeling as if you don't fit in. But in actual fact, that's probably what Cambridge Cambridge University were looking for in you, I suppose, in many ways, Georgia. I haven't got the foggiest. <laughs> I mean, you know, they had the exam system. I don't, I don't know. I've no idea. I did my PhD at Oxford and I was much happier there because I was in a college which was 80% overseas and 20% British. And I felt so much more at home. And you obviously see... I am British and I feel it, but I could never describe myself as English. Interesting. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. You seemed all set to go down the route of academia. You did the Masters at LSE and then you went to Brussels for a couple of years where you yep. researched African demography. Was that yep. an enjoyable time? I had a ball. <laughs> <laughs> I think living overseas is the best thing anyone can do because it just breaks you out of your kind of the limited mindset of wherever you're in and to see our culture from from another from another culture have a similar and to be with people who are so well versed in English literature can speak English fluently but actually think you're very parochial is a real eye opener and I was just with very very bright and capable people many of whom are still my friends who just showed me a different way of being and thinking and it was a huge amount of fun. And also the lifestyle on the continent is so much better. Mm. We worked very, very hard. And then you go out at 10 o'clock at night. And one o'clock at night, you're still in a bar. And you see all these ministers of state. And they're, they're in bars <laughs> too at one o'clock. It's just a totally different lifestyle. But you then came back after that. You came back to, the, to, to Oxford yes. to do a PhD. Yes, because what the British academic system has is academic freedom in a way they don't on the continent. So in the UK, you decide what you're interested in, what your subject of research is going to be. It might be different in the sciences, but certainly in the, in the arts and the social sciences. Whereas on the continent, you have to find a professor and you have to do what they're interested in. And oh. they support you and they, they're like your mentor, but you work as their underling. And I was far too independently minded and British in that sense that I, I needed to come back home. Mm -hmm. So that's why I went to Oxford. And during that time, I think it was, that you went to Brazil to do field work and yeah. you lived in a favela, of all things. Tell us about that. That's really fascinating. <sighs> I was so terrified of going because I met this wonderful nun in Oxford before I, I went out, Anne Coleman, who'd lived over 20 years in a favela in Sao Paulo. And she told me, apart from that, I'd have to learn Portuguese, that I could expect to be raped living <gasps> in a favela and to be robbed and I was so terrified that every time I went into the language labs in Oxford I'd freeze so I arrived <laughs> in Rio speaking not one word of Portuguese because I just I just couldn't learn it I was so frightened and so I learned very quickly because there's no other way you get around in Brazil without actually speaking Portuguese and I went on a course but um, 
the fear determined how I did everything at first because I was just in denial about what I was doing. But eventually, through some weird set of coincidences, I did find Favela and I did go and live in it. And I had the most extraordinary year of my life. Um, I felt so privileged to have had it. Just remarkable. Um, living with people that I would never have met otherwise, some of whom through Facebook and social media, I'm now very much in contact. Um, when I originally came back, I had to, used to have to buy aerograms there and send them to them because they couldn't afford. If you're living on $60 a month, you can't afford to buy aerograms or stamps to send international letters. Yeah. And now I can communicate with them because everyone's got a smartphone and they're all on social media. So that's quite extraordinary so many years later. And of course, it is a very dangerous place out there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did did you did you face any violence yourself? The closest I ever came, and I everything I was told in terms of how to behave, I was adopted by a family of a man who I consider to be my hero, political hero. Uh, but the advice they gave me was never go out at night on your own. Always go with someone, which I so I never did. And one of the very first times I ever went out at night was um, I was about to start dating this guy, and we went for a walk at night. And we were on quite a long street on a hill and it was very dark. And he suddenly pulled me into an embrace and I could feel his heart palpitating. I thought, oh, this is it, a romance, this is wonderful. <laughs> and then he, his, his hand clasped my head to his chest very, very tightly. He just said, don't move. And so I just watched what was happening. And what happened was that a group of sort of probably drug traffickers, sort of gang of young men, came up and... As they passed us, I could see that one of them was swinging a gun round his finger as he walked. And what Haimundu had done was he'd pulled me into an embrace because he didn't want them to see that I was white. And he thought I'd just be easy game. Because not only did I look white, was I white, I also looked foreign. And for a foreign woman to be in the favela was, was really, really odd. To the extent that I, I made friends with a priest who's got the fantastic name of Tarzan Lion. And, <laughs> and Tarzan, Tarzan came to see me at one point because he wanted to visit the favela where I was living. He was living in a Dominican friary. And when he arrived in the favela and he had no idea where I lived, he just asked people if they knew the gringa, to which they responded, oh, you mean the blonde? I've got very dark brown hair. But to them, I was so white that I was blonde. <laughs> and people, I didn't know I was a known phenomenon, but people directed him to my house. So you really were sort of standing out there. And did you Apparently. get what you what you went for, the research that you were doing? I'm assuming that. Yeah, no, no, that I, was I did. Yeah, I was doing a, a, a survey and anthropological fieldwork looking at unmarried mothers, trying to work out who married, who didn't marry, whether there was a difference between married or cohabiting or being single. Georgia, how long were you living there for? I think I was in the favela probably about 11 months. It is a long time knowing that you have to live a life of scrutiny and making sure you're safe as well. Did did you sort of have a sort of a book of notes of how to be and how to you learned how to be in Brazil as a woman? Um, no, I mean, apart from Anne Coleman telling me I was going to be raped <laughs> <laughs> and not to wear any rings. Um, no, I mean, I, I was very lucky because I met Anne through through a Dominican priest who's a quite a famous theologian now called James Allison. And James and I, he was also he was living in the, the Dominican convent and I used to meet up with him quite regularly to have dreadful pizza in the centre of town. So I had someone I could rely on to talk and who was experiencing the same sort of other experience that we were having of not really belonging. And I had friends who were in Rio who I would go and stay with about once every two months from Brussels. 
and that was a kind of a way to escape the intensity of the experience and go and have a bit of an R and R weekend. Otherwise, I was just completely submerged in it, and very yeah. happily so. It was an incredibly enjoyable year. But you then um, went on to Harvard to study demographic anthropology. But then you came back to the UK because you met a man, I believe. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, God, yes. <laughs> um, so I, I was actually working at Sussex University and I went on a fellowship to Harvard. So I was I was doing that. But, um, yeah, I, I got together with my now husband, although I'd known him for a very long time. I actually got together with him over a conversation in, in New York. And as a consequence of this conversation, I kind of jacked in my life I'd actually moved to the US I had another two years lined up in Austin Texas and I was I'd, I'd moved all my books to the States and I thought I was gone and I came back <laughs> that's quite incredible actually it's a big step to take you know it was having... extraordinary yeah. I was I'm a very indecisive person but literally he just sort of said do you want to spend the rest of your life with me and I said yes without even hesitating which was really weird that is the stuff of novels, actually, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, if I put in a novel, no one will believe it. <laughs> I, I can see, though, that some of your, your life experiences, I think, have made it into the dressmaker of Paris. Your experiences is, of Brazil and, and so on. Yeah, there is one completely accurate scene in the book, which is taken from something that happened in Brazil. Um, only two people so far have guessed. Oh, really? Um, I mean, there are bits of my life in the book, but it's not biographical by any means, but there is one scene that's completely true. Because you also talk about in the book, the subject of single mothers is mentioned a couple of times, actually, isn't it? Because the the protagonist, the the protagonist at the beginning, through no fault of her own, becomes a single mother and has to leave her village. Do you know, I hadn't even thought of that. (laughs) Yeah, I, I keep on finding these things that the subconscious just throws up. Yes, it, yeah. it does sound like it's tied to the research that you were doing. Yeah, it obviously impacted your mind because also um, the protagonist Rosa, her colour maid, but she becomes a really good friend, doesn't she? She also falls pregnant at one point. So yes, it's just kind of interesting. And are you yeah. anything like Rosa then, Georgia? <laughs> I so wish you could have a video of me. (laughs) So I have a thing for red lipstick and pink lipstick. This is true. I had my colours done when I was was 30. And so I wear very bright lipstick about once a month. My daughters laugh hysterically at the idea that I could be like Rosa. I dress so badly. (laughs) I don't. I'm the worst sewer in the entire universe. I can knit badly, but I cannot sew for the life of me. So the idea that Rosa is in any way me is mad. On the other hand, the subconscious is what it is. And I suspect that perhaps were I to lose weight and be slim and lithe, maybe I'd be like Rosa. I don't know. You mentioned very recently, Georgia, that there was a particular year where you First of all, you gave up academia, then you started writing, and then you became Jewish. Just explain a little bit about this, these three events in your life. Yeah, so as I said, I've always had a sense of being other. And my mother is, comes from part of Italy that's German-speaking, but she was brought up as a Catholic. And my father was a German-Jewish refugee. So I, I didn't ever belong to Christianity properly and I didn't really belong to Judaism because you follow, and the Jews follow the mother's religion. And my mother was automatically excommunicated because she married before Vatican II and she didn't pledge to bring us up as Catholics. So we had no faith. 
So we were European multi-faith living in Britain. And one of the things I noticed at Cambridge and then at Oxford was I was most happy with people. What you said about being working class is interesting. So my best friend from school who's English is also working class and she was as as much out of sea at school as I was because being British working class in a British private school is is a pretty hard experience. Mm. So most of my friends were others othered in some way as well. And when I was teaching at Sussex, I just realised one day I was sitting around the coffee room and I realised that all the people I was sitting with, huge disparity in age, but they're all Jewish. And it really struck me as interesting that here I was in this incredibly diverse environment, but the people I hang out with were Jews. And I just thought of it at the time in a completely casual sort of way that if I ever fell in love with a Jew, then I'd convert. Because in a way, what, whenever anyone asks me, you're Jewish, aren't you? I have a big nose and I'm called Kaufman and I gesticulate a lot. I would always deny it and say, no, 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 my mother's Catholic. I'm, I'm half Catholic. And that sense of always denying it, I thought, you know what, I'm going to own it. When I was in the States and Richard, and my husband, pro- propositioned me, didn't propose to me initially, without him asking, without him saying anything, he is a distant cousin, um, which my daughters asked me to keep quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe you can take that okay. one out. <laughs> That's okay. So he's from, from the Jewish side of the family, but he didn't ask me to convert, but I'd already made that decision. If a Jew fell in love with me, I would convert. And without him knowing anything, the week after we had our conversation in New York and I was back in Harvard, I just went to a rabbi and said, I want to convert. Like, again, I said, I'm very indecisive, but I did this all so quickly. So six months later, when I returned from the States, I had become Jewish. Wow. Um, which mm. you can't do mm. in the UK. It takes three years in the UK. You know, it's like fast food. Everything's fast in America. <laughs> Get fast Jews. <laughs> you converted to yeah. Judaism. What about this uh, stopping academia and starting writing? What turned this around? When I went to the States, as I said, I moved all my books. I had three years' money there because I had a year at Harvard, two years at Austin, Texas. And I, as far as I was concerned, I was going to be living in the States the rest of my life. And I thought, well, I might as well just accept that I've got to be my own. So what I'm, I'm going to do is fulfill myself and I'm going to start writing again. So I signed into creative writing courses as soon as I arrived at Harvard and started writing. And I'm trying to think when Rose, I think Rose's voice hits me before Richard and I hooked up, which was in December. And it was like taking dictation. Every day I walked to work, and I'd walk to work on these lovely tree-lined streets, and there was like this voice just talking to me. It was like taking dictation. So I'd just write down what she was saying, and the kind of story started telling itself. Wow. And when I came back to England, I had one more year left at Sussex, and then I had to either find another academic job or do something else. And I'd flown over from the States to a job interview at the LSE and hadn't got it. And the thing about being a specialist I had, which was a demographic anthropologist or anthropological demographer, there weren't many jobs available at all in the UK. And being a Brazilianist meant that I was even worse placed. If I'd been studying in India or Africa or one of the ex-colonies, it'd be totally different. That's why I'd gone to Austin, Texas, because it's the biggest um, Latin American library in the world outside of Latin America. I think, yeah, including in Latin America. And the Americans, obviously, being neighbours of Latin America, are deeply interested in it. And it was becoming a speciality there, the demographic anthropology. So I kind of knew that if I came back to England, I wasn't going to get a job. There were about three demography departments in the country. I'd already applied for one job and not got it. So I kind of knew my, the writing was on the wall. And so I left when I my contract to Sussex ended. 
and then I ran a small development agency for two years and then the writing just took over when I'd had my daughter I, I quit the job when I had a 12 week old baby and then when she was about a year old I started writing again do you I find just, writing easy? You know, you said you almost heard the voice of Rosa and you kind of oh, it felt like you were dictating. Of course, that isn't that isn't truth. But it, a lot of writers say that, you know, sometimes it's almost like automatic writing. It just pours out of you. Do, do you find it easy? Well, I, I, the last two years, I haven't been trying to write. I've been doing something else. And I gave that up two months ago with a view to that I would write again. And I'm going spare because I've got a block. <laughs> However, once I get through my blocks, it's the most exhilarating process and yeah. I love it and I do find it easy. I, I'm I'm very lucky is that plots just comes to me. I have a goalpost. I've no idea how I'm going to get there. Mm. And the stories, the, the characters tell the stories. Mm-hmm. And editing is a different thing. You go back and you edit and you change and manipulate. But the actual initial storytelling yeah, is so, yeah. so exciting because mm-hmm. you've never... Just like the reader, you've no idea where it's going to go. But there, know, there are lots of different ways of writing. There are other people do it very differently. Yes, yeah, some people block it out, don't they? And, oh, and they totally. know what's coming. And I think, I'm not a writer, but if I were to be, I think I would be like you. I would far rather the characters told me what was going on. And, um, and they told the story, really. Yeah, I just think people's brains work in different ways. I mean, these people go for walks and consciously think about things totally blows my mind they can do that if i want to think i go and hoover and i don't think about it at all but at the end of the hoovering the idea has resolved itself yeah mm. you've two grown daughters and based yep. based on your experience what advice would you give to young women who are about maybe to go to university or just embark on life do you have any advice for people in that position i what i've always said to all young people i know and, and very much to my daughters is People who decide to do a degree or or become something because it's a good thing to do or it leads to a good income, that doesn't need to happiness. I've always told people to follow their passions mm-hmm. because I really believe that if you follow what you're, if you find what you're passionate about and you do what you're passionate about, you'll be fulfilled. Yeah. Whereas if you aim to make money, you might end up doing something you really hate. Yeah. And I just, you know, that's to me, that's just not the way to live. I know. I, I think we had it easier in, in our time when we were going to university yeah. because it was almost yeah. the grants were there and you could oh. almost kind of go from one to the next and you could change and chop and change your mind and I had one friend who I think did ended up doing four different topics she just kept changing our course but now there, there really isn't that freedom actually and I think there, there, there's far more people feel they have to plan you know which is a shame I mean I, I had my entire education was free and paid for by the government mm-hmm and I, I look at kids now taking out loans. I just think it's just mm. not fair. It's not. Yeah. And it, and it penalises the country because then people are then making the wrong choices about why they're doing things. Yeah, and ending um, up wasting degrees, to be quite honest, because yeah, they don't yeah. use them. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. Or getting in debt for degrees they're never going to be, to, be able to use. No, so, no, it's, it, I mean, I, I recognise it's a very different situation. But then all the more reason for actually doing what you're going to be best at. Yeah. Mm. yeah, Georgia, one of the authors who gave a sort of review of your book, Jill Paul, best-selling author of The Lost Daughter, she said the story of a remarkable woman, a book that you can lose yourself in. What do you, in your view, what makes a remarkable woman? What if you? How would you recognise a remarkable woman? What do you think is good in your eyes about women doing good stuff? Belief in self, 
knowing that you could, I mean, I think so many women are unable to achieve things because they don't think they measure up. And I think just having that faith that you can push through, that you can achieve, and the determination to do that. I think, I mean, if I think of all the women I know who have done well, and that's something that, to differentiate remarkable women from remarkable men, that is what's different. I mean, when I used to teach at Oxford, I, used, I te taught, taught undergraduates, the blokes were all so cocky. They all thought they were brilliant. Yeah, Even confident. when they weren't. Yeah. Uh, even when they weren't. And the girls, they always had done more work. They'd always better research. They had written better essays, but they thought they hadn't. And so that belief that you can do it, that you are worth something, is what I think takes women up to the next level. Whereas the men all assume they can do it. So it's, they often rise when they're completely incompetent. That's a good answer. Yeah, yeah very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Georgia Kaufman, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you today. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I've, I've had a lot of fun too. Thank you. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. Earlier on, we talked about makeovers and we've got somebody coming up, Susie, haven't we? You can we certainly have. help with that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hannah Martin. She is a well-known makeup artist and... Boy, we're so looking forward to talking to her. Maybe we'll consider, Linda, getting out the makeup bags. Maybe we won't be going feral after this. Maybe this is the moment we'll be trying to reinvent ourselves because, of course, Hannah Martin has been involved in royal weddings as well, hasn't she? She has. She's been an advisory makeup artist. She's been on television. She has her own YouTube channel and she's absolutely brilliant. Looking forward to talking to Hannah Martin. Cambridge 105 Radio. Kickstart your weekend. Saturday Breakfast with Matt Webb. I'm here every weekend to get you moving. I have the latest from the Cambridge News Desk on the hour and half hour. Problems on the A14, Newmarket Road or Mill Road? Well, if there are, you'll be the first to know in the travel. There's a full sports roundup at 8.30, including what's happening at Cambridge United and our other local clubs. Plus a look at the Saturday papers and local online publications at 10 to 9. That's Saturday Breakfast with me, Matt Webb, this weekend from 8. If you're like me, you've got a family and a business, and you want to protect what's most important when the chips are down. With Woodfine Solicitors, that's exactly what happens. I got a bespoke legal service from a friendly expert team. They really listened to what was going on and tailored their recommendations to my situation, which was, well, that's another story. Anyway, the best thing was that it all happened online. A few simple clicks and I had my quote. That freed up time to focus on everything else. Get the help you need when you need it most. Visit woodfights.co.uk or call Cambridge 411421. Woodfights, cutting through the red tape. What does your home need to feel complete? Gap Home Improvements have been helping customers give their properties that curb appeal for over 20 years. You've seen our vans in your area providing dedicated support to families across Cambridgeshire. Windows, doors, garden rooms, conservatories and warm roofs. We offer free quotations in a pressure-free environment. In person, on the phone or by video call, our consultants will help you realise your property's true potential. Call Cambridge 914-567 or visit gaphomeimprovements.co.uk today. Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. 
I don't know about you, but after months of lockdown, I certainly feel like a change of image. And we're about to talk to a woman who can help with just that. Hannah Martin is a well-known makeup artist who has worked with some iconic women such as Helen Mirren and Nadia Hussein. Hannah was involved in the wedding makeup of both the Duchess of Cambridge and Princess Eugenie and is the resident beauty expert on the TV makeover show 10 Years Younger in 10 Days. So who better to give us advice on reinventing ourselves? Thank you so much for joining us on Women Making Waves, Hannah. Thank you for having me. Good morning. (laughs) You're very welcome. Hannah, for some of us, the face mask has been the best fashion accessory ever. (laughs) I've got to confess, I've hardly worn any makeup for the past year. I can't seem to come to grips with the fact that people can actually see me in Zoom. How do we all get back on track? Hannah, help us. (laughs) Oh, it's definitely been a very different year 18 months in beauty hasn't it because to your point we we're no longer going out and meeting people face to face um although that's starting to pick up again now um so we have just gotten used to our own reflection at home in our our loungewear uh zoom seems to be a wonderful uh gentle barrier doesn't it to mm-hmm. a camera lens seems to be slightly forgiving is the wrong word because often it's not forgiving the lighting's not yeah. great and it's not particularly flattering but there's kind of an understanding isn't there an unspoken understanding that we're all at home we're all doing the best we can and therefore you don't necessarily feel the same kind of pressure to be groomed and um, but what's really interesting is I've partnered with um, Center NK and they did this incredible piece of research in March of this year about perceived top trends here in the UK for makeup and they've garnered the top 30 makeup trends and I just think what a brilliant kind of guide and tool potentially for women and men now who are you know we're we're coming out of lockdown and it's time to maybe start dusting off those makeup bags delving into products that we do have and maybe using it as an opportunity to experiment or to um maybe it's time to refill your makeup bag and you know start afresh with with new product or maybe it's time just to have some fun and Mm. you know try the winged liner that you saw Jane do on Zoom a couple of months ago but you've not had the liquid liner to try it or the red lip that you know someone else was wearing the other day that you thought looked great but you've never had the confidence to try yourself. Mm. It's it's interesting Hannah where you say dust off the makeup bag I mean I never (laughs) thought anybody we'd ever think we'd have to say that that we had to park that somewhere that little makeup bag and wait till now but for men and women, and, and I say men as well, because I think men are wearing wake up for whatever reason. I think that's great that they do that. But from their point of view, having a year off, what would you say? What is the point of going back into makeup? What would you say is the most mm. important thing about thinking about coming back, taking that, that makeup bag off the shelf and starting what well, is really all over again? Yeah. Well, I wonder if for many people it will be um, a way of reinstating that little moment of self-care in the morning. I think when you're working from home, it's very easy to be on your phone and laptop from the crack of dawn till last thing at night. You know, you wake up, you turn over in bed, pick up your phone and check your emails. But actually now as as we start to head out a little bit more and restrictions are easing, you know, it could be that moment of of care and to some it's going to sound very corny but it's actually just reprioritizing yourself Mm. and thinking Mm. do you know what 
I'm going to go and meet a friend in the garden. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to spend the next five minutes um, preening, for want of a better word. And actually, you know, when you're meeting friends for the first time, um, maybe that's less essential. But when you are maybe seeing colleagues or um, people in a work situation face to face for the first time, getting ready and applying a little bit of makeup is a bit like getting dressed you're getting kind of game face ready as I call it and sometimes a bit of concealer to tone down redness in the skin a little bit of an eyebrow a bit of a bit of a lip and a bit of mascara actually you can feel uh pull together um a little bit like you've got your uniform on and you're ready to go yeah what do you think the most important item of makeup is? Oh, what a <laughs> what a question. And I think whenever I'm asked this, I, I flip between a few. But I do think for many, many people, a lick of mascara can work wonders for opening up the eyes, um, making the eyes look bigger, making them look brighter. And, you know, when when contemplating in real life eye contact that can make you feel good but maybe even the person who you're speaking with you know they also recognize that you are game ready you know ready for that interaction Mm -hmm. so for most people I would say mascara a close second if I may um I always preach the power of blush because no matter what else you're wearing a bit of color in the face just makes anyone look healthy guy or girl as if you've just exercised if you've just been for a walk a flush of color to the cheek and it really can be instrumental in helping people look their healthiest Mm -hmm. the tv you've been doing the the tv series that you've been doing as well do do you ever suffer from nerves when you're doing makeup for huge occasions and in particular for tv as well does that does you sort of have to think oh gosh I cannot make a mistake I just have to go with it (laughs) how do you cover up a mistake that's what I'd like to know (laughs) well the joy of makeup is no matter what you do it can be removed so um when when it comes to tv sometimes if I'm if I'm speaking through what I'm doing I can correct a mistake without even addressing it so whether it's a a little blob of mascara I can I can continue talking but all the while grab a q-tip or cotton bud and and lift off that little smudge of mascara um but yes of course I get nervous yeah for big occasions for for tv I think tv more because it um people will look and they'll judge, won't they? I think every makeup artist wants people to enjoy their work. And then of course you want your clients to be happy first and foremost. So there's there's usually a little bit of pressure um, involved with the job, but to anyone who um, has had that accident with the winged line when you've given it a go and it's gotten too big or um, you worry that your foundation's the wrong color, the best advice I can ever give is just don't panic. You know, Mm. uh, there's nothing that a cotton bud and a little bit of eye makeup remover can't fix when it comes to eye makeup. And, you know, if your foundation's gone a bit wrong or there's too much, uh, take a little bit of moisturiser in between your fingertips and then just press that over the skin and it will, uh, it usually fixes texture. Or if it's colour that's wrong, it'll help you lift off whatever base you've applied so you can try again with something warmer. 
Yes, I've seen in your videos that you're very, you say you're very keen on just dabbing your face with your hands to, to, to slightly, slightly heat up the, yeah. the foundation and make yeah. it blend into the skin, which I'd never thought of before, actually. Oh, really? I, that. Yeah. I think yeah. there's been a huge shift in recent years towards the use of uh, sponges and brushes. And I think the art of using your hands has been forgotten for some. And there's just a magic that happens when you use the warmth of your hands to cup a face. I do this to all my clients and most of them really enjoy it, I must say. But if you just hold the face and just press very, very gently, to your point, the warmth of your hands melts the makeup into the skin. And the result being base product look more like skin than they do makeup. And that's yeah. usually what I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. And in the year of lockdown, Hannah, do you find mm. you've been doing this? And I've been watching your videos, actually, and they're <laughs> very, very good because mm. I'm going... But did you feel that you were revealing a little bit too much of yourself? Did you think, well, this is it. I'm going to have to go no makeup on. And I'm really... Um, to be honest, you have an amazing face. So makeup she, Yeah, she's gorgeous. On. Yeah, makeup <laughs> off and she on. She doesn't need makeup. No, exactly. But for, for me, I'm not talking about anybody else. But do you feel that you were revealing quite a lot in lockdown? Or was it quite a sort of a liberating moment? for you well um it's really interesting I think I think throughout my career I've I've actually never been too worried about doing things kind of makeup free whether that's you know master classes demonstrations videos for brands etc um but it felt really that now was a time more than ever to get rid of the perceived perfection that I think a lot of the beauty industry or a lot of just not even people in beauty just individuals now on social media try and portray and you know I very much wanted to to do some educational pieces for those people who were stuck at home thinking I do not know what to do you know to help myself look and feel better um I don't know what to do to help myself look and feel better for my um you know zoom virtual meetings um but also I thought it was a real moment for those who were maybe juggling children at home and full-time work and house management etc just to see some really simple really quick makeup looks and um there's something I find as you know also as someone who views this kind of stuff I find it refreshing to watch a video in real time so I can really judge if the practices they are teaching are as quick as they say because it's all very well seeing a beautifully edited video that calls itself a three-minute makeup but is it really a three-minute makeup? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Sometimes it's a big jump, isn't there? This is something that looks really, really yeah. different to the. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do, do you have to spend lots, of, or do we have to spend lots of money to get the best product? Is is there value to that? Um, this is where I th- I think that you know the wonderful thing about the market now, and I think Centre MK is a brilliant example of this because there's just so much beauty available there. Um, but the market is is saturated in a great way with many, many brands, you know, varying from very different price points. So I'm a huge lover of, you know, high street product. I think things like uh, the L'Oreal do brilliant, brilliant mascaras. Uh, Max Factor do a really beautiful soft cream blush, which just works beautifully across all skin types. Um, But I'd say if you want to, if you're happy to invest somewhere within your makeup bag, I would say that foundation is probably a place where um, you get, not always, but 
uh, it's worth spending just a little bit more to make sure you've got a really great shade that matches perfectly, but yeah. also the right texture for your skin tone. Yeah. And Hannah, just I just want to touch on your amazing experience. Did you always want to be work in the makeup industry, or was there something that you just found yourself in? You know, you've had experience in, in Bobby Brown, and you were artistic manager for the UK and Ireland for the Pro. And but just tell us a little bit about how you came to be where you are now and being very successful. Yeah. Well, I. It's funny when I reflect. I always, always loved makeup. It was, it was a bizarre, it was a bizarre love affair because I was very much a tomboy. But, you know, I got to an age where actually all I ever wanted at Christmas and birthdays was boots vouchers so I could go and buy natural collection makeup. That was my, <laughs> that was my first love. Um, and then um, for kind of further education, I, I pushed theatre school first. That's kind of what I thought or kind of what I'd always aimed for. Um, but then when that didn't work out, I really didn't have a plan B. So um, I went to university, I studied nursing and I can hand on heart say I knew from day one when I registered at the John Radcliffe in Oxford, <laughs> I knew I was going to hate it. <laughs> oh, really? So I, I loved the people. So yeah. and I, I've always loved working with people. And I do think people skills actually make up a huge part of um makeup artistry because it's very intimate you're very mm. you're in close proximity with people and you have to be good at building relationships very very quickly um but really it was only when I joined the drama society in the latter stage of my degree when I realized oh my goodness you know I was do I was helping out with the makeup and I was like this is just my first love so I had a bit of um counseling at uni and I remember the therapist saying you know Hannah what is it that you want to do and I burst into tears and I said I want to study makeup <laughs> now at this point I felt I was getting a bit too old and a bit too I didn't know if I could really start a plan c um but I finished my degree um I actually then got married straight after uni and then I just pursued makeup we moved to London and you know, from nowhere, absolutely penniless. I remember the best day was when some tourists gave me a preloaded Oyster card with like a week's worth of, it was a week's travel card. And I was like, wow, I've got this travel card. I can go all over London trying to meet people and make connections. Wow. And it was very slow going. And after kind of six months, my husband said, Hannah, you know, I love that you're trying but I actually just need you to get a job and earn some money because this is, it was it was really tight. He was just, you know, a young graduate, whatever. Um, so that's when I went uh, knocking, you know, in the beauty retail sphere. And who knew? Who knew? I certainly didn't. I didn't know that I could join Bobby Brown Cosmetics and end up meeting Bobby Brown herself, becoming a, a friend. She's a lifelong friend of mine. And working directly with her oh, that's brilliant. who, who would have story. thought but yeah. you know it was it was a lot it was hard work determination and saying yes to absolutely any and every opportunity that's good advice actually for anyone who's trying to get on in, in life yeah yeah, yeah, just say yes. And just uh, just one more, Hannah. I just want to know you've you've worked with some amazing people, both off the screen and on the screen. And out of all of them, have you learnt from their sort of makeup, sort of, uh, or in a way they organise their makeup day? How have you learnt from them as well? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh yes, and 
you know, there are tips and tricks I learn from my clients. There are tips and tricks I learned from them that they've learned from other makeup artists. Mm, um, I was really keen in lockdown to spend a bit of time um, online and offline with other makeup artists to ensure that um, I was, you know, maintaining my learning throughout lockdown. But yes, I'm always fascinated by what my clients have in their makeup bag and who recommended to them and and why and how do they use it so um yeah as an intrinsically nosy person it's one of my favorite parts of my job (laughs) and just february 2020 you started off doing the channel 5 revamp 10 years younger in 10 days is that possible to do 10 years younger in 10 days well it is we know we've seen on the we've seen on the show that it's great that people people have had kind of 15 years taken off. Now, let's be honest, this is a public perception. So this is, there's a poll done at the beginning, you know, uh, with the public and then at the end. Um, But I think for, and I can safely say for the contributors that I've worked with, the the transformations really are, it's not about the hair and makeup and the clothes. Actually, they come on a, a 10 day journey with a team who were just, there for their every you know for their beck and call for 10 days and they are as cheesy as it sounds they are just lavish with love and attention and for many of the contributors that's the first time that they you know in a long time that they've had so much focus on themselves and uh, I think it's that focus um all the time spent uh with you know the the professionals and the team and then it's the it's like all the beauty treatments and the hair and the makeup and the styling are literally the cherries on the cake. And for some women, they've never had access, and guys, they've never had access to stylists or hairstylists or makeup artists who've ever told them what might work mm. for them or what might make them look Absolutely and feel better. Right. Honestly, it's one of the jobs I'm most proud of because there's something um, so gratifying and so pleasing seeing someone fall in love with themselves all over again. Yeah, that's great. The, the end great of it, line. the big reveal is fantastic. Yeah, actually. I know. Lovely. It's yeah. the family and friends reveal bit that yeah. gets me. We'd, we, <laughs> with, with COVID restrictions, we were all very kept separate. So we'd be sitting in the makeup room and waiting for the squeals of delight <laughs> <laughs> across the studio. Hannah Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think, Susie, that our friends and relations will be relieved that we're about to um, to break out into the makeup bag again, because um, as we've uh, as we've said, we've both gone a bit feral, really. Um, I've had my hair done. I had my hair done the other day. Oh, you've had yours done as well. Yes. Oh no, I was just holding my headphones actually, oh, just to make oh, sure that they were staying up. No, 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 no. I was just making sure that they were listening. But yes. I'm glad to say that you've had the first of your makeovers, Linda. Um, it's just the rest of me, really, that's uh, that's needing a bit of care and attention. <laughs> so off, off to dust off the makeup bag then. Yes, I'm going to be dusting off the makeup bag. It has got a little larger over the last larger? few weeks. Yes, Why? yes, I've, I've added more things to it. Yes. Well, they needed renewing more than anything else. The trouble with makeup is it can go stale on you. Yes, yes it that's right. It smell a bit funny. So do, yes. do be careful of that yes. when, you're, when you're digging in there for the first time. You yeah. never know what's going to bite your fingers. 
But we have had such a lovely time and our thanks, of course, to Georgia Kaufman and Hannah Martin. So how do you find us? Well, we'd love you to be able to continue listening to Women Making Waves and you can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook. That's at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves Radio. Or, of course, you can go along to Cambridge 105's website where you can find our podcast there, as well as our own website, womenmakingwaves.co.uk, where you can find all of our recordings. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye for now. Bye.